So welcome everybody. This is meditation uh, and attachment, uh, deepening your practice. And we're doing a metta vipassana, um, one week metta practice or heart practices and one week uh, vipassana practices. This is a vipassana week. And I thought that we would talk about uh, the second stage of um, the progress of insight, which is called knowledge discerning conditionality. In uh, the first class that we did, I talked about what why it is that you might want to meditate in, a, in this particular way of practicing and also what you might get out of it. And and then we explored the basic sensing uh, uh, experiences. Most of the time, the insights that come from practice come from watching your, your uh, sensory responses to the conditions of the present moment. And so the idea is to sensitize yourself to this uh, experience of uh, object that can be sensed, meeting the capacity to sense the consciousness of that sensing experience arising and then it being evaluated as pleasant unpleasant or neutral vedna is the second process then compared to the perceptual database uh, so the unfixated undifferentiated consciousness experience is compared to a database of previously experienced things which uh, also has uh, the capacity of imagination there and then if there's a close enough match, then the undifferentiated uh, absolute reality becomes transformed into conceptual reality. But there's a process in there, which is this the sensitivity to conditionality, which is really the, the function of mind. Where does your attention go? What in the experiences that are arising in front of you, do, does your attention focus on? Um, it's interesting in reading the Mahasi text, what the first thing it describes here is that uh, if you make a decision to do something, like I make the decision to, to uh, pick up this cup and drink from it, the consciousness of that proceeds the desire to pick it up, which we know is the description in the, the text. But we know from neuroscience and, and the capacity of testing that we now have that actually all of that process is unconscious and precedes the conscious uh, experience of doing that. And so there's a, a difference between what we know now in terms of how these things can happen and what the the monastic uh, and traditional view of Buddhism in describing them. <clears throat> we don't know in that sense uh, ahead of time uh, what we're going to do and we don't make a conscious decision about doing it. That all happens unconsciously. And then we know as it enters into consciousness that we could lift up the glass and take a sip from it but we also have a small window of opportunity to veto that strategy. So if we examine it from that point of view, uh, you have the capacity to sense if it meets an object that can be sensed, the arising of that sensing experience happens in consciousness. And then it's compared to the database of information and becomes something 
becomes uh, uh, conceptual reality becomes uh, in a state that we can understand consciously in this experience that we often think of as what's really happening or in Buddhist terms the self experience <clears throat> when you're meditating and you're beginning to meditate the idea is to pay attention to what's actually just happening in the present moment um, so that you can can have the experience of it what happens uh, next of course is also talked about in this traditional text which is that your attention is drawn to particular things particular thoughts and it can get attached to them and you can get pulled out of the experience of meditation into the content of experience and then all of a sudden you're wrapped up in the, the thought experience wrapped up in the self experience and you're not uh, in the uh, awareness space watching these things arise in consciousness you're lost in the content of them unaware that these things are happening um, it says here in the case of consciousness desiring of running off the track there arises first the corresponding consciousness giving initial attention to the distracting object if that consciousness is not noticed with mindfulness then there arises a consciousness that runs off the track um, so what Mahasi is saying there is that if <clears throat> something is fascinating there's a moment where you you make a decision to get pulled into the fascination of it and lose the meditation in the beginning of meditation practice what you may notice is that the mind is constantly being pulled in to experiences um, <clears throat> constantly getting lost in content con content and you're not uh, able to watch it happen uh, enough um, at any point uh, I should say if you want to ask a question just unmute yourself and ask the question and I'll answer it or if you want to uh, send up a, a flare there's a, a chat feature here that you can click on let's see <clears throat> Um, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, <clears throat> so I have this uh, interesting thing that happens. Some questions it says private and some questions it doesn't say private. And so uh, I'm trying to... Um, <clears throat> only answer the questions that are not private in the group and then just uh, responding to the ones that are marked private in private in the beginning of meditation you're sitting down you may or may not have enough concentration actually to focus on the different sensing experiences and you may find that the content of the sensing experience over and over again is pulling you in and you're losing the vantage point of awareness and so what we want to do is hold the uh, awareness space and watch these events of consciousness arise and pass away uh, from that vantage point the insights that can come from this are really uh, uh, of interest and there's a lot of different kinds of insights that can arise you can have psychological insights you can have insights about the work that you're doing you can have um, 
uh, insights about uh, uh, the past or the future arising in consciousness in that moment. In the traditional way of practicing meditation, of course, the only insights that are valuable are the, the insights that lead to enlightenment. And so all other insights that might uh, arise in meditation are not considered valuable. But as householders, it may be that some of the information that comes up in meditation actually is quite valuable, and you, it, you might find it useful to write them down. <clears throat> One of the things, uh, even during the, the process of meditating, so that they come out of the mind, one of the um, <clears throat> difficulties of short-term memory and the process of short-term memory is that uh, you think a thought and you have about a 10 minute or so window to think about it and then it runs out of bandwidth and then if it's checked for finished, it goes into the process of turning it into long-term memory. But if it isn't, it goes back to the queue so you, you'll notice that it's possible to get into these uh, circular or repeating thoughts pretty easily. So one of the ways in, in practice to get these uh, thought loops out is to write them down on a piece of paper so that you know that you have them and that you can get to them later if you need to. If you're able to sit in this second uh, stage of insight, um, and I like to talk about it really as the sensing experience of mind. So last week we talked about <coughs> touching, seeing, tasting, hearing, and smelling, and using the see, hear, feel technique, allowing your attention be, to be drawn to the activity of sensing, and then noting that sensing experience, dividing it into these five aspects. But in Buddhism, we typically talk about six aspects. And so the, the sixth one is mind, the sensing experience of mind. And what you notice in mind is that it directs where your attention goes. <clears throat> so you're sitting in meditation. You're not intending to focus on any particular thing, just doing an open uh, process. Um, and the mind directs you. So this is described in, in the Mahasi text, which I thought I would read. Um, if that consciousness is not noticed with mindfulness, then there arises a consciousness that runs off track. But if the consciousness of initial attention to the distracting object is noticed and known, no stray thought will arise. It is similar in the cases of other types of consciousness, for instance, when taking delight or being angry or greedy. When both the sense door of the eye and the visual object are present, there arises visual consciousness. Otherwise, visual consciousness does not arise. And so is the case with the other senses. If there is noticeable or recognizable object, then there arises consciousness engaged in noticing or thinking or reasoning or understanding. And as the case may be, Otherwise, no such consciousness arises. <clears throat> so the object meets the capacity to sense, the consciousness of the sensing experience arises, and then it's compared to the database of, of previously known things, 
the meaning of that is attached to the undifferentiated sensing experience. It becomes that into conceptual reality. And as part of that, what action to take from it. So in sitting in meditation, just watching the arising of sense objects, um, you can see that the attention is drawn to a, a, a sense object and then other activations arise and then the mind draws you to another object. What's interesting to explore here is which objects does your attention move to if you're not intending to move it in any particular place. Then what you begin to understand is what is the hierarchy of sense objects? What is your personal um, preferences? Um, what is your conditioning revealing to you about what you like to focus on as opposed to what you don't like to focus on? And in this way, learn about yourself and about the experiences of your conditioning um, as you pay attention. You may notice biases in the selection of objects. We all carry in us this, these hierarchies of objects that have meaning to us, and we tend to focus on them, and our eyes are drawn to them. So over and over again, if there's a choice of many objects, the mind tends to habitually go to the one that, it, there, that the conditioning has created a preference for. And if you're not sure how you filter out and create the experience of conceptual reality, one place to pay attention is in this process of being in the present moment, focused on an object of meditation, and then watching the flow of attention move to another object, and then shift to the other object, which comes into the experience of the present moment. What the mind, uh, the body-mind does in order to create conceptual realities, it takes these snapshots, these mind moments, this string of mind moments, and from that string of mind moments creates this experience of solidness. Um, it creates the sense of self, it creates the sense of world, the sense of uh, self being inside, the sense of the world being other people mainly. We are pack animals. We live in complex social groups, and we really like that uh, process. Um, one of the uh, early stages of spiritual development is, and this is also probably true of just developing as a human being in the world, is you learn that you have a a mind and a mind state, and other people have a mind and a mind state. You have your own conditioning, which creates the way that you create and perceive things, and other people have that as well. And uh, part of that working model, of course, are all of these lists of preferences. And so when you're sitting in a room with someone else, and you're experiencing what's happening, and they're experiencing what hap what's happening, because our conditioning is different and because our lists of preferences are different, our attention is being drawn to different aspects of what's happening in the room. And we're creating from that different lists, that different collection of snapshots, our experience of the present moment. 
as they're creating their experience of the present moment. Um, if there's an openness to this and an understanding of the, the nature of this creation from the pure sensing to the conceptual reality, and you can see into the uh, ephemeral nature of this, the transient nature of this, it becomes much harder to take things personally. It becomes much harder to become rigid and recalcitrant about uh, uh, opening to the possibility of other people's perspectives, other people's experience. And in fact, if you get really uh, engaged by this, um, it becomes fascinating that you can sit in a room with someone else and that they can create a world that is quite different than the one that you experience. And it's very enriching when that happens, if you uh, can be open enough with somebody else and, and they feel safe enough that they're willing to express this to you authentically, uh, it, it becomes so much richer to be in the experience of the present moment because you're, you're having an additional perspective that you wouldn't necessarily see yourself because your conditioning is different than theirs. So you have this possibility of opening and being engaged with other people in a way that's not defensive. Uh, if you don't defend from yourself, then of course you have the possibility of seeing how you are experiencing things and how you're creating things. And then of course, if you end up creating a, an afflictive version of the present moment, you have the possibility of examining how you've done that and then letting it fall and recreating in the experience of the present moment a different version of what's happening because your version of what's happening is not what's happening. It's your selection of what's happening that you've created into a world based on your preference. So when we begin meditation, um, there's a few things that need to happen. We need to develop enough concentration that we can watch this process flow without each time some shiny object arising, getting completely attached to it and pulled into the flow of it so that we lose the perspective of it. When we come out of awareness into the content, um, one of my favorite metaphors that the Buddha used was standing on the riverbank and watching the water flow by that if you're in awareness watching that flow of sensing experience, you can see the changes of things that are happening. But if uh, a wave <coughs> were to wash over the bank and pull you into the river, then actually uh, you're just in the content of the water moving you down the river, banging you into rocks. And it isn't until you crawl back up on the bank and retake that perspective that you can see that the river, is, the river of sensing is flowing by. Um, <clears throat> your ability to have insight into anything that's really happening is this ability to, to, to watch this flow of sensing experience. Now, um, different ways of practicing um, produce different uh, experiences of this. Um, in the Vipassana way of practicing, which is the, to divide up and zoom in and see the individual strands of experience, 
And then in understanding these individual strands of experience, coming out and seeing how they are formed together. So the warp of the, of the weave and then the tapestry, this moving in and out creates uh, an understanding of what are the pieces and how have I assembled them into this picture that I think is what's happening. Um, in this movement back and forth between conceptual, uh, between absolute reality and conceptual reality, the mind state plays a role because it acts as a filter. So if the mind is equanimous, then the reflection through the senses and the mind is fairly accurate in terms of its representation in the way that we understand things. But if the mind is clouded by different uh, mind states, um, the Buddha used uh, um, craving, aversion, restlessness and agitation, sloth and torpor, doubt as the, as the main ones. Um, but you may know anger or sadness or joy or happiness and how that affects it. You may uh, train yourself with uh, Brahma Vihara so that you can intentionally cause the arising of beneficial mind states and hold those. I like to teach also an understanding of attachment mind states so that you know when your attachment mechanism is activated, part of that is this filter that, that, that distorts um, absolute reality into conceptual reality so that you can see when that is happening. In some sense, this practice of Vipassana meditation is this rocking back and forth between examining conceptual reality and dropping back into absolute reality and constantly comparing the two to make sure that the representation that you're making in conceptual reality is an accurate reflection of what you're sensing uh, in ultimate reality. But particular attention being paid to this process of the mind's attention flowing from object to object to object creates this, um, this collection of mind moments that we then make into conceptual reality. You can apply this to other people and you can apply it to yourself. Um, in the beginning, um, the question is, and this is one of the also the early sites and insights in uh, meant to take you on the path to enlightenment is the insight into to no self. Um, and again, th these the insights that you tend to have is really correlated to the kind of practice that you tend to do. So the insight into no self that we have in practicing Vipassana is quite different than insights um, in other practices around this uh, phenomenon of self. One of the first things that we what that we see is that the construction or the working model of self that we carry with us is not permanent, it is not ongoing, it is not always the same. We see that like all things, there needs to be an object that we can sense that causes the arising of a consciousness of the sensing experience which awareness knows. 
And so the elements, the sense object elements that create the experience of self must be present or because if they're not present, then the sense of self doesn't arise. And so one of the investigations that you can do is to begin to examine what are the objects, what are the, the experiences in the present moment environment that need to be present in order for the experience of self to arise. And when they're not present, what happens to the experience of self? It tends to fall away. And as you begin to explore that, what you begin to notice is that there's a lot of different uh, sensory experiences that can happen in the present moment that cause the arising of a self-experience. And in, depending on the combination of those objects in the moment, different uh, kinds of self-experience arises. And so there isn't one self-universal experience that just is on and off that the selfing experience, like all sensory experience, requires an object, and depending on which of those objects are present in the moment, that version of the selfing experience arises, which awareness knows. So what you may notice in one-on-one in -on -one exchanges with people, a, a, one sense of self arises, and in a small group situation, a different sense of self arises, and in a larger group, a different sense of self arises, and in, in a big crowd, a different sense of self arises, and this is largely tied into different objects that might be present. One is the degree of safety that you feel. One is the desire to be uh, connected to the people that are there with you in that moment or in absence. One of the things that uh, we're facing now in the pandemic uh, is uh, particularly for people who are sheltering in place on their own, um, the objects um, uh, that are normally present to create a sense of security in self and a sense of connectedness and joyousness are not present. And so a different sensing experience around the self arises, which might be loneliness or longing. Longing arises and depending then again on conditioning toward that, a preference toward that or, or uh, an aversion toward the experience of that, a different sense of self arises in response to that. And then we need to hold on to the, the, the deep insight that the self is impermanent. The self is only arising based on those conditions so that it, we don't get sucked into the experience of it. We don't fall into the river of and get dashed against the rocks of, of that that self experience. Uh, say of loneliness or um, a sense of disconnection. And then, how can you then uh, cause the arising of a different kind of selfing experience based on that? <coughs> Paying attention to that flow of where your your mind takes you, and uh, acting on it. Longing is one of these energies, of course, that connects us. It's it's the, the one of the forces that we experience. But then, when the sense of longing arises, we have conditioning around that, and it may be a desirable experience. It may be an undesirable experience, and uh, conditioned reactions may arise around it. Uh, 
Um, I like to talk about it in attachment terms uh, so that longing arises in secure people and they think it's a great energy that means they're going to put energy into connecting to people and so they, they're happy to have the experience of it. So it arises and it's pleasant. In dismissing uh, people, uh, longing arises and it's <coughs> usually experienced with sad, as sadness or uh, a combination of sadness and shame, which uh, people often have an aversion to. So a sense of longing arises and the conditioning around that uh, causes sadness and shame to arise. And so uh, the, the experience of longing is not a vital energy that propels you toward connection. It's something that you should avoid at all costs and suppress if it does arise. Preoccupied people tend to experience longing as a um, fearful experience or one that produces guilt in them. Again, that could be an aversive reaction. If you notice uh, then how the hierarchies of sensing experience which arise are appealing, things that are pleasant you may be drawn to and things that you find unpleasant you may avoid and in that collection of mind moments that you create by attention being drawn to one thing and away from another, you create uh, the experience uh, of the present moment. The present moment is, if you've fixated anything, is this, this channel which then leads to the potentiality of the next moment. And in that next moment, all of the possibilities are there. All of the choices that you could make in that moment arise, and your attention is drawn to different potentialities <coughs> based on your conditioning. You may not even be aware that some of the potentialities in the moment are present and available to you and that all you have to do is pick them because the mind isn't paying attention and only that habit of being drawn to the things that are pref preferential and away from things that are, are not aversive that you pick uh, of the, the, the <coughs> you fixate from absolute reality into conceptual reality, an aspect of the potentiality of the present moment, and that becomes the next moment. And each moment, each succession of moments, this is the process that's happening. And so you can get in ruts, uh, I guess we call them samsara, the ruts in the road that are formed by where all of the, the, the cattle cars, uh, carts are drawn. The, the habit of preferring one thing and not preferring another and not valuing something so it doesn't even get included into the mix. And so in meditation, particularly in this uh, insight that we're exploring, which is mainly around where attention is drawn to, this is the, 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 the fertile ground of insight that we're looking for when we sit there and we notice that our attention is drawn <laughs> to an aspect of visual experience or auditory experience or a sense of the body, 
where is our attention going and why is it going in the way that it's going? That's your insight. Now, how do you work with insight? One of the things that you may notice in practice, and one of the things that keeps practice really vital, is a lot of insights coming up. So in the beginning of practice, you're paying attention and, and one insight after another, thousands of them arise, and they all seem relatively new and exciting. And, and so in meditation, when you want to explore an insight, you step out of the technique and think about what arose in the meditation in an active way to explore it. And then when you've explored it enough, you settle it and move back into the meditation technique to continue with the practice. That's why I've often thought it was useful to have a pad. I'm a writer, and so if I was actively engaged in writing something, my mind would be generating all of these insights in terms of the writing, and it would consume the whole period of meditation if I didn't have a pad and write them down, because once I wrote them down, my mind would be finished with them and it could move more easily into the meditation. But this can be true of any kind of practical thought process that you're engaged in when you're uh, practicing. The insights may come up and they may be valuable and you may want to write them down. And if you don't, they'll be um, continuously cycling in the mind or lost. It's not that they won't return, it's just they move from uh, short-term memory into long-term memory. In the monastic texts, they tend to be very uh, firm and linear about never letting that happen. And I uh, am a householder and tend to like to uh, offer practical suggestions for how to do this in the way that we, we as householders tend to practice. We step out of the meditation, we think about the insight until we're satisfied that we understand the insight, and then we return to the meditation technique and continue the practice. And then the next time an insight arises and we're interested in exploring it, we step out of the meditation, think through the insight until we're satisfied with it, and then return to the technique. So in the beginning of meditation, it seems that so much is happening and there's so much new information arising and so much um, understanding arising. And then as we practice longer, what we may notice is that the same type of insight or the same insight experience that we've already taken time to explore arises. And then we don't need to explore them. We can just set them aside. But when you notice that your pra practice is stilling or reaching a plateau, really what tends to happen is that you're covering the same material over and over again. And it doesn't seem fresh anymore. And the insights that are arising seem to be things that you're familiar with and that you already know. And so you don't want to stop and take the time with them. And actually it can cr create a craving experience for a deeper insight. And so it's important uh, to pay attention to that so that you know when you need to shift uh, what you are intentionally exploring into something that then is going to put you into a, a place where the insights that are arising are again 
engaging and, and, and causing you to look forward to practice instead of uh, taking it on as a, a rote practice or a, a chore. And that's why it's uh, often useful to have uh, somebody to go to to ask about that and talk through um, um, your practice with them so that they can help guide you. I don't know um, if you've ever done much traveling, but when I was in the south of France hitchhiking uh, when I was a kid, um, all signs, all towns in the south of France have a road sign that says Paris on it and is pointing somewhere. Um, but you, you can't get to Paris by following all of the signs that point to Paris. What ends up happening is you go in circles because every sign points, every town has a sign pointing to Paris. And then after a little bit more discernment, you realize there are three types of signs. They're all different sizes. They're all different colors. And the, the letter sizes is different. And that you then you learn you have to follow the same series of Paris signs in order to get even closer to Paris uh, and not just end up in circles. And so really this is the, the point of uh, either a, a fellow traveler who's working with you or, or a teacher. And they don't have to be that far ahead of you. They just have to be far enough ahead of you to point out uh, the next place to look to pursue these uh, insights. Um, one of the things that can get quite um, baffling in terms of practice if you don't have this kind of um, help is that you can't tell which insight is worth exploring and which insight isn't likely to lead anywhere. And it becomes hard to see what the obstacles to practice are. Um, whereas if you could see them clearly or somebody could help you uh, investigate them, they might be quite easy to solve uh, or to go around. Um, but without that, you can't really see them and know what to do. So. Tonight, the practice is going to be, again, a see, hear, feel practice. I thought that we would start with some breath counting. We do need to be able to develop enough concentration that we can stay with the objects of meditation and recognize whether or not we're getting pulled into thought so that we can choose to stay in the meditation and not get pulled into the thought. And without uh, access concentration or enough concentration, Really, the, the, the stickiness of the objects themselves will just carry us off and we'll, we'll be spending most of our time thinking, recognizing finally that we were and then coming back rather than engaged in the meditation process and watching it unfold. But tonight, when we do the see, hear, feel technique, um, if you have enough sensory clarity that you can easily discern vis visual from auditory and from the felt sense of the body, what I want you to do is watch the process of your attention flow from one object to the next. So what you'll notice is you're in, let's say, C space, and then there's energy from the body that's um, uh, in the edges of awareness. There's en energy from auditory uh, that's uh, edging into awareness and that, that you watch the pull of 
those different objects on uh, the awareness of the object in the moment and then there's a flow of consciousness from one object to the next and then that object becomes the dominant experience in the present moment and the mind may be engaged with it and stay with it you know for a few seconds or for longer than that and then these other objects that are in the periphery of consciousness will suddenly take on more gravitational force and you'll notice that the awareness flows from one object into another. Is that instruction pretty clear? So we're doing a basic see here field technique and watching mind, the function of mind, which is the thing that's collecting the sensing experiences. And then pay attention whether any insights arise around that. Is there a sense that this object is more interesting to me than another object is and any sense of why that might be. And that's the, the pathway into the insight of your own uh, conditioned preferences for what to focus on in the experience of the present moment. We don't really ever take in everything that's happening. We only take things that are on our list of preferences if they're available to us. We tend to fall down the list of things that are less and less preferable based on the, the absence of the, the, the things that we like. Um, so we can find ourselves in spaces that we don't like at all, but not know that we don't like them at all because they don't, we don't have any of our favorite objects in there, our favorite sensing experiences in there. So what we're really reacting to is that our, our main preferences aren't available to us. So the absence of that rather than uh, a neutral uh, experience of what's in the present moment. And you'll notice that this creates that craving for things uh, to be different than they are, aversion to the way that things are. And uh, if the, it's really a, a desert of preference, then it just doesn't matter. We don't really even want to focus on it. And so beginning to, to, to check that. In insight practice, we're attempting to see how we make conceptual reality out of ultimate reality so that in each moment we can evaluate whether we have an accurate reflection of that or not. Um, and in seeing in that, know the, 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 the true nature of the human condition. How's that? So, so we rest in awareness and we don't realize we're part of awareness and we're constructing, constructing a reality based on all of these sense doors or sense gates. Well, I think what happens is we get so habituated into creating conceptual reality that um, with no insight at all, we think that conceptual reality is actually what's happening. We think that we're a solid, continuous, ongoing self-experience and that our version of reality is what's happening. If you operate from that uh, place, you're naturally going to be in disharmony with other people because you're not seeing that their version of things, their, their, their process is different than yours because their conditioning is different. When you begin to see into that and see how your um, preferences create that experience, uh, 
um, then uh, you're freed up from that, that rigidity, that, that conflict that often arises. Is that making sense? Yeah, so then you tie that back to attachment and conditioning and reactivity and, you know, you know, marry that complexity of all of these different forces that are at work. Right. Preventing you from getting to that place. Right. Then you can begin to see the, the, the habits of how you construct um, the sense of self and the sense of world and move to a place that's actually a more accurate representation of them. And then you can see more clearly the way that other people are, and it opens up the, the capacity for just a tremendous intimacy, tremendous compassion, uh, and support and encouragement. Uh, and then it also opens yourself up to those things from other people. Um, and I say, in some sense, makes this whole process of being alive uh, bearable. And actually meaningful. Will I get there? Thanks, George. Yeah. Dan Brown says, which I really quite like, that the idea that this is going to take a long time is the mental construct that you should give up. <laughs> uh, that it can be quite uh, quick. Someone else? Gigi. Uh-huh. First of all, I want to say I appreciated that in the um, in the meditation you gave a permission to um, kind of lead the instruction if necessary and follow uh, whatever thought that or story whatever it was that was coming up until you were satisfied with it and then um, move back to the instruction rarely hear that in instruction and um, and so uh, somebody who has a bit of a spazzy mind uh, <laughs> it's just one more thing to beat myself up over mm -hmm. you know so, um, that permission was nice because we're going to do it anyway we don't have really much of a choice right you know? if you get pulled um, in you're you're gone <clears throat> right yeah so I appreciated that and then um, uh the, you know, your perception of what's happening, your perception of reality, um, how it's influenced by your attachment. I mean, you know, I know a little bit about the attachment stuff. And um, so it all sounds great uh, when you're like, oh, I get it. So this is just my perception of what happening. It's like, oh, there's how many sides to a story, right? So, um, which is great, and it certainly allows for, you know, compassion, somebody speaking, and you're like, why are they being so crazy? And then you're like, oh, it's actually just their perception, their perception of what's happening that they're responding to. But, so you've gotten that far, and then you're like, but I see that, and they don't see that. Right. So then it opens up the possibility of collaborating together so that you can each see uh, each other's perspective and you can come to a way of being in relationship together that's useful to each person. And if the person that you're in relationship with 
is not on this same path. That <coughs> um, sounds a little odd, doesn't it? Um, no, I, I think that um, you well, you don't have to use meditation terms or meditation insights to create the, the, the shared experience, but you do have to move to a place of being willing to collaborate with them as you negotiate the terms of how you're going to be in relationship to each other. So negotiating the terms being the key point right it's well I, I find that it's a way of collaborating I have the need I have my own needs I have the the ways that I like to be taken care of which you also have all of that is based on conditioning I have sensitivities and you have sensitivities what happens when we think that our version of things is correct is that I should be able to take care of you in a way that's meaningful to me that I would enjoy if I were taken care of that way and there's a failure to understand that that doesn't mean anything to the other person and they don't feel taken care of. And you're thinking, well, I took care of you in exactly the way that I like to be taken care of. You should feel taken care of. Mm -hmm. uh, and, that, and that piece is the misunderstanding about the nature of these things. You need to take care of people in a way that's meaningful to them. And they need to take care of you in a way that, that's meaningful to you or you won't feel taken care of. In fact, you'll feel the opposite. You'll feel unseen, misunderstood, underappreciated. And if you react to that, what you miss is that they did take care of you. They just didn't do it right for you. And so they can say, but I did take care of you. And you can say, yes, you did. But you need to take care of me in this way so that it feels like that's what's happening to me since you want to take care of me. Interesting. I've been in relationships with people who are in this practice and then not. And when you're not, it <coughs> comes off a little crazy sounding. Oh, um, I guess I don't mind that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And that's also not being taken care of the way that you need to be taken care of. Right. I hear that. You know, and the you know, this is an important thing. You want to have people around you, close people around you, that will support your exploration, your solo exploration. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, it's like the net. You're doing the high wire, you slip and fall, and you drop into the net, and they catch you, and they help you regulate, and then they encourage you to get back up on the high wire, and that's what makes life really interesting and really meaningful. But if you can't, if you don't have a net, you suddenly become less and less willing uh, to to really go out to the edges of exploration, and you can curl curtail your own exploration to the point that um, life loses uh, its meaning, and then you you find yourself in a, a place of despair because it's so difficult. Uh, so, without that team, that, thank you. Yeah, uh, it's hard to, to to make those risks. Good. Someone else? All right. <coughs> we are out of time. And I wanted to tell you a couple of things. One is I'm doing a day long on um, uh, it's med our meditation and attachment for relationships class. It's a class on, on 
collaborative relationships, a day long on collaborative relationships and how you can use your meditation practice to support those. Um, and that's on April 25th. You can find the, the registration on the website, metagroup.org. Um, this class uh, tends to be uh, for intermediate and uh, advanced uh, practitioners. Um, uh, and I know I know that uh, and frequently do hear from people that uh, that they wish that there was a beginner's class where they could come and easily learn all of the terminology and easily learn the techniques. And so in two weeks, with, in collaboration with the uh, Los Angeles Athletic Club, we're going to I'm going to start a beginner's class. The format of the beginner's class is going to be different than this. In this class, uh, there's about 40 minutes of uh, uh, talking about the topic and then 30 minutes of meditation and 10 minutes or so of Q&A. Um, in the beginner's class, it's going to be a 15-minute a, uh, meditation uh, and then uh, 20 or so minutes of uh, explanation for why you, you would do that meditation and then the meditation is going to be repeated and the class is a, an hour long. Um, so um, uh, keep a lookout th for that. We'll be sending out uh, emails for that. And then the last thing I wanted to say is that uh, this class is offered on a, a Donna basis and uh, any support you can uh, give to me or to, to Metagroup is greatly appreciated. You have to go to the website and click on the link for donation to do that. But uh, whatever you can do is really appreciated. And of course, the, the class is available for everybody to attend. Uh, thank you, and we'll see you next Thursday. <clears throat> thank you, George. Thanks, Anne. Good to see you. Thank you, George. <laughs> I didn't get here on time to hear your driving. No, you didn't. I'm going to call you tomorrow. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, George. Have a good night. You too, John. Take Thanks. Care, Thanks, Janet. Bye, Heather. <clears throat> thank you. Yep. Thank you. Thanks, George. Thanks, Nathan. See you. Thanks, George. Thanks, Julie. Thanks, George. Bye, Edward. Good to see you. You too. Take care, George. Thank you. Bye, James. Wonderful to see you. You look great. <laughs> you look great too, George.